The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Tuesday morning, the 7th of November. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. All going to plan, Airgrid will have completed the construction of the North-South Interconnector by 2026. The project has become the subject of controversy for more than 15 years because Airgrid has ignored what people in Meath, Cavan and Monaghan have been saying to them over all of that time. And that is... They don't want the electricity lines to run over ground as planned. Airgrid has always rejected suggestions to run the lines underground. It has won that argument in the planning process and in the courts. And with the full support of government, Airgrid is now looking to gain access to land, offering €50,000 per pylon constructed and as much again for permission to run the cables on the pylons. There's no doubt that some local people feel let down by both Finnegale and Fianna Fáil after years of promises from local politicians pledging to campaign against overgrounding the project. Look, I think I've always expressed my views on this project and that is first and foremost the communities need to be listened to and they need to be engaged with um, and that is why 10 years later I suppose we are still at the stage we are at um, planning has been agreed uh, and obviously that is a, a process that no elected representative will seek to, to to change, but obviously I had my say in that process at the time. Um, we've had three separate independent reports or reviews, all of which um, have come back with the same response, and that is for this particular type of project, type of connections that they're trying to, to develop, this overhead power line is the best way and the only feasible way to do it. Now, you know, I, I am always and have always been of the view that as technology evolves, this is something that we need to continue to look at. Um, but the next steps are there is going to be further engagement with the communities in September. And I would absolutely urge Airgrid to make sure that communities and that landowners okay, and that people but are... You, but do you stand by the decision uh, that was made uh, by your cabinet colleagues in your absence? Uh, well, look, I wasn't there, as you've said. But, but the you stand by... Taken and yes. I, I, I do, of course. Okay. Look, this decision was taken, but as I've said... That's Minister Finnegale, Minister Helen McEntee, speaking to me at the end of August. Now, this is local Fianna Fáil Minister, Thomas Byrne, speaking to me yesterday. I feel, as a public representative, that I've brought it as far as I can. This has been in the been for planning permission in the Supreme Court, in European courts. Uh, there's been multiple reviews of it, including under this government. And I, I, I don't feel I can bring the campaign any further. Um, everybody agrees that we need this line. Uh, everybody, I think, acknowledges that a underground line can be done, but it's not ideal, and it's way more costly. Um, and there are significant issues with it as well. I don't think there's any doubt about that. You definitely can't do an AC line underground. You can do it, you can do it partly DC line underground, uh, but significantly more costly. Um, and I think we are in a situation now where I can't be on the radio talking about increasing energy prices um, and our dependence on natural gas uh, and not say, well, what are the alternatives? And this is one alternative that we have campaigned to have underground over many, many years. And quite frankly, up to now at least, and we have, as I said, we've gone to the highest courts in, in Europe, uh, the NTP have. Um, I, I'm not sure how, further, how much further anyone can bring this. Uh, do you accept that people feel betrayed by Fianna Fáil? 
No, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that at all. Um, I mean, we committed to a review uh, before the last election. We did the coalition government. We we didn't get, um, you know, as many seats as we hoped to get. There was a review done, not a perfect review, but a review was done. And I still concluded that if you're to underground this, it would be significantly more costly. Thomas Byrne, Fianna Fáil Minister, speaking to me yesterday. We have tried to, to speak uh, with uh, the local Oireachtas government uh, members on uh, the programme. Fianna Fáil Senator Shane Castles is not available to us today. And Fine Gael TD, Damien English, did not return calls to this programme. Let's speak to Sinn Féin TD for me, the Darren O'Rourke. A very good morning to you, Darren O'Rourke, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, do you accept uh, what we heard there from uh, the two government ministers? This battle is over. The fight has been lost. This is the only viable option. Uh, it's far too expensive uh, and complicated to go underground at this stage. Uh, they've accepted those arguments. Uh, it's clear, I think, listening to the two ministers. Uh, do you? Well, I think there's a couple of things in that, uh, Michael. One is I, I, I think they have given up the fight on it, uh, those two particular ministers. Um, I, I, I don't agree with their assessment, and I don't agree with their conclusion. Um, Minister McEntee said that this was the the best way, the only feasible way uh, to deliver this project was, was overhead. Um, Minister Bourne said that there had been multiple reviews uh, that, that, drew, uh, that drew that conclusion. Um, but fundamentally, uh, uh, more than a decade on, it is a fact to say that we ha- have never had an independent comparative cost-benefit analysis of overground and versus underground and op- uh, options, um, taking into account the full economic, environmental and social impact of this project. Um, and that's a damning indictment of successive governments and of Airgrid. And, and, I, and I have to say, the conclusion, and I wonder if, if Minister McIntyre actually read those reviews that she's referencing, because we talked before about the most recent review, and this was... Um, you know, a, a, a far from what was needed, and it was far from what was promised by particular Fianna Fáil in, in, in opposition. But it drew the conclusion that um, that uh, 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 that there were technologies there that could be feasible, uh, and specifically pointed to uh, VSC, HVDC. Um, were, were the, the review was particularly critical of Airgrid uh, in relation to the need for an operational costs cost benefit analysis had pointed to technologies that hadn't been appropriately considered talked about uh, the sunk cost and the the the, the practicalities of delivering this uh, uh, project over overhead versus the the practicalities of delivering it under on underground and actually pointed in that technology and I'm not an engineer um but and, and and I think we need to refer to people who who have expertise in this area. And I've never delivered or built a, 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 an energy grid. But they specifically talk about if you assess these projects, not just in terms of the the initial upfront cost of building them, but over the whole life of those projects. So imagine it's 50 years in the ground. Um, 
that if you look at, you know, for for example, the issue of uh, electricity loss, so cables going overground, the amount of electricity that's lost every hundred yards of cable compared to underground. If you take those costs into uh, into account, if you take carbon emissions into account, that actually the proposition, the cost benefit analysis of undergrounding is far more attractive, relatively speaking, than the, the approach that Airgrid have taken over here. So I don't accept uh, uh, two things. I don't accept uh, that this project has been appropriately assessed comparing overground versus underground. But does it, matter? Do, do, does, does it matter at this stage? Uh, are the arguments not over? Uh, it, it's been through planning, it's been through the courts. It has the approval of government. So, so I think I think we are at a critical juncture uh, in this project. Uh, I think uh, it's right when I heard Porrick O'Reilly on, on Friday say that uh, it was probably inevitability that we were coming to this point, uh, given the position of government and given the, the approach and po- position of Airgrid. Airgrid now are playing their hand. Um, this is everything they have. And in truth, I think the next number of months will confirm whether this project can be delivered overground. Um, my sense is it can't. My sense from the response of individual landowners on the back of these letters of offer, my sense on the back of you know over a decade of campaigning in relation to this, uh, is that the, the level of opposition in practical terms, whatever about the legalities, and I'm not a legal expert either in terms of ESB networks right to, to, to access lands, but in the in practical terms, if there is a critical mass of opposition to delivering this project uh, overground, it won't be delivered. And that's a problem for Airgrid, it's a problem for the government, it's a problem for this government, and it's a problem for, for future governments. So instead of belligerence and head in the sand, uh, uh, you know, throwing good money after bad, um, sticking with a bad idea, I think uh, government and Airgrid uh, should come to the table with a with a focus on solutions and the practicalities of of delivering uh, and uh, what we all agree on uh, an energy grid that is uh, fit for purpose for the 21st century. And bearing in mind when Airgrid, in their you know multiple uh, uh, documents in 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 recent years, they're sustaining the uh, energy future uh, document, um, constantly point now to enhancing the existing grid and delivering new ne- new network uh, uh, underground uh, on the, the national roads network. They've specifically been in, uh, in talks with uh, Transport Infrastructure Ireland in relation to that. We see it in the Kildare-Mead Kildare line. There is a recognition there at a corporate level within Airgrid that the way to deliver um, uh, energy infrastructure, we need to deliver, deliver a lot of it in the, the, the years ahead um, is to enhance the existing network, uh, not build new grid, and where you have to build new grid to do it underground, uh, preferably along the road network. That is the, the principle that is guiding future energy right. build uh, in, in Ireland, apart from in the north-south interconnector. Right, well, Airgrid doesn't agree and Airgrid has uh, the support of government Um, so if uh, there was to be an election in the morning there'll certainly be local and European elections in May Uh, how would a Sinn Féin uh, government uh, deal with this problem if you like? 
Well, I think in the first instance, we need to have, so, so one, um, going back to that question of uh, the next number of months will be, will be a telling in terms of whether this project is deliverable overground. My sense is it won't be deliverable overground. That has always been my, my um, uh, sense of it in relation to because, the campaign of because people won't get so, air grid or ESB or whoever it is onto their land to uh, exactly. Right, right, so, yeah. so regardless of your opinion, regardless of yep. the planning law, regardless in terms of so, so if this thing can't be delivered on uh, overground, well then uh, this government or any future government, and I hope Sinn Féin is part of a, leading a future government, will have to find an alternative solution. So. And that's what, what I believe uh, successive governments ha- should have been pursuing for the last 15 years. Um, but we would be faced with that challenge. So then, and, and I don't have all of the answers, but what I would do is seek from the relev- relevant experts, instead of framing a review in a very narrow way that doesn't answer those questions, to say, we're at, we're at the starting point again here. Do we need this infrastructure? Can, you know, how, and if we need us, so answer that question in the first place. And if we do, how can we deliver it in practical terms? Can we, for example, enhance existing infrastructure? Can we use, as ESB have been calling for, uh, uh, hybrid connections, the use of, of uh, um, you know, where you have renewables, gas, you have solar, uh, 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 so, so enhancing mm. existing in infrastructure? Can we do that? Or is there an alternative delivery, for example, for example, undergrounding with VSE HVDC uh, along the, the, the roads network. You know, and, mm, and but how, how long would that take? Basically, what you're saying is you throw all the plans out, you just scrap the plans as they exist and go back to the drawing board. But if it's the case that this project cannot be delivered mm. uh, uh, as airgrid and, and successive governments have, have planned, and we've already been 15 years at it, and bearing in mind that a, a conclusion of the, the most recent report by the, by, by the Italian consultants was that, you know, if, if all of that had been factored in 15 years ago, maybe you might have gone with, 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 with undergrounding, or you might have gone with an, an alternative delivery. But would your approach uh, of starting from scratch, would that not mean another 15 years? Well, see, it, it may not at all. And again, in terms of like what, what, what I would in, in the first instance, and if, and if I was minister, the first thing I would do, a short, sharp review in terms of delivering this project and, and, and answering the first question, is this project still needed a, a, um, or you know, could it be delivered in a different way? So two, two questions. Is it needed? Can we do it by enhancing the existing uh, interconnectors? Can we do it uh, uh, by an alternative delivery method? Is undergrounding uh, a technical and feasible option? I, I think it is. And what is the additional cost? We recognize there would be additional cost in relation to that. And maybe a future government uh, needs to say, well, it, it just costs more to deliver energy infrastructure in Ireland. And uh, that, that's the, the cost doing business. So you would push electricity prices up? Well, well we're already paying the, mm. the highest electricity prices in, uh, in Europe um, and there's many contributory factors in, in relation to that. I think um, uh, again, as, as I said, I don't have, have all of the details because successive governments and airgrid have been absolutely resistant but we know that the cost comparative has been coming down over the years what exactly it is would mm. depend on the delivery model but, but we, we, we we've just heard two ministers say that it's far more expensive to go overground 
Based on what, Michael? Based on, 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 based on what? Based on very limited reviews that they prescribe themselves. Um, whereas what we're saying, and, and uh, not just us in Sinn Féin and others in the opposition, but the, the, the last review, um, the last review conducted by the, the two Italian consultants, very limited in, in terms of, of its, uh, um, in, in terms of its scope, mm. but it also said that there was need for a more detailed analysis, that it should be carried out, that it should take into consideration market, market conditions, network typology, and operational conditions, physical power flows, uh, mm. and a number of other factors, as I mentioned earlier on, in terms of uh, loss across the, the life of okay. the, the project and carbon emissions. Okay, so, but as things stand, Airgrid is trying to gain access to the land. They've made their offers uh, and offer some may find impossible to refuse. It's a lot of money. Uh, we heard from Patrick O'Reilly, as you say, on, on Friday. He was saying, I think it's 85% uh, of landowners will not give access. Uh, that's his estimate. Uh, do you think that that uh, uh, sort of resistance will hold? Well, it's it's up to, to individual landowners. I think we are at that critical juncture. A thing I would say, and I have always said it, you know, are... Our strength is our unity. Uh, you know, I'm a, a, a trade unionist. I have always acted on the basis of, you know, in politics, it's about solidarity, it's about unity, it's about cohesion. Um, I think that has been a major strength of this campaign. I think that the campaign would recognise that themselves. If Airgrid and government had any sense, they would recognise it as well. Individual landowners will will make their own decision. But I, I do think it's uh, it's clear to me that a significant number um, uh, will, will 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 not opt for 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 um, the offer from from Airgrid. And I do believe, in practical terms, it would require a critical mass of of, of landowners to resist the offer to ensure that, in practical terms, uh, this. Process Project cannot be delivered uh, overground, but as I said, we're at that critical juncture now. Um, uh, uh, you know, there will be, co- yeah, and and, and I, you know, it, this is a divide and conquer strategy on behalf of Air, Airgrid. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, you know, I would be concerned that it will drive division in communities, possibly within families. Um, uh, when, in my opinion, an alternative has been in place, one f- uh, grounded on engagement, on compromise, on uh, um, uh, airgrid at every turn have failed to opt for that. And uh, most regrettably, they've had the, the backing of government uh, in the form of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael uh, uh, over the years, in particular in recent years. OK, well, we hope to put those points uh, to airgrid later this week. But thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. That's uh, Sinn Féin. TD for Mead East Darren O'Rourke who's his spokesperson as party spokesperson on climate action and the environment Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM Well as I'm sure you heard yesterday from the 1st of March next year you may not have to go back to your GP if you need a repeat prescription because pharmacists will be given the power to extend prescriptions up to a maximum of 12 months How will this work in practice though? Cathy Mar of the Haven Pharmacy in Dulik and to the chair of uh, the Pharmacy Contractors Committee of the Irish Pharmacy Union joins us now. Good morning, Cathy. Thanks uh, for Hi, your Michael. time and for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. What's your understanding of how this will work in practice? We, we, we have no understanding just yet because this only was announced yesterday by the Department of Health um, in response to the Minister for Health establishing an expert task force looking at various things that can be done to 
improve healthcare to the public, improve access to healthcare for the public and to expand the pharmacy role. So this is the first report from that task force and to see that potentially prescriptions will be extended from six months up to 12. But I suppose to come right back to when you or any of your listeners go to the GP or to the hospital and you have a prescription, depending on the medicine and depending on how many months or weeks the, the prescriber wants someone to take medicine for, that's legally valid for six months from the date that's on the prescription until six months. And we cannot dispense beyond that. However, during COVID, um, because people couldn't access a lot of the care settings they would have been um, familiar with, during COVID, legislation was amended that pharmacists could extend prescriptions for some prescriptions, for some medicines, for an additional three months, but without a structured consultation. So it was kind of just a, let's let this run for a couple of months mm. more and then still refer someone back to the GP. However, my reading of the press release from the Department of Health yesterday certainly means that a patient would come into a pharmacy, say on month six or month three or whatever number of repeats are, are, have been finished by the GP, and have a structured consultation. So we'll sit down and go, okay, right, how's that medicine working out for you? How's the condition um, coming along? Has, you know, if you had symptom resolution, have you symptom improvement? Mm. Have you any side effects? Very similar to going to the doctor, isn't it? I mean, it's a a consultation with a a medic who will Mm -hmm. assess the need to prescribe further or not, as the case may be. And that may make it easier for people, the general public, that is, uh, to see a GP because GPs won't be tied up with repeat prescriptions. Absolutely. But what will will it mean in terms of cost? Because I'm sure you're going to charge for that, aren't you? Well, you know, I suppose nothing, no new practice, no new work practices can happen without resources. So that detail has to be worked out with the department. I would anticipate there has to be funding allocated towards any kind of new work practice. And if we're alleviating pressure in GP, there has to be resources put in place into pharmacy. Um, and charge-wise, compared to from the state or for patients, none of that detail has been worked out just yet. And... First of March isn't very far away as a mm-hmm. as a pharmacist and I look and I can see Christmas in January and, and kind of respiratory illnesses. I know we don't have a whole lot of time to get the detail worked out. So I know we'll be working with the department in the coming weeks and months to get it ready to hit the right ground um, from the 1st of March. But it's also really important to think of it almost as a safety net. We know many people, when they need a repeat prescription, phone the surgery and it's just sent by email to the pharmacy mm. and they may not actually have a conversation with the clinical professional. However, with this, I would like to think that it's also a safety net, that we can have that conversation with a clinical professional and say, actually, yeah, it is safe to go ahead. Let's go ahead mm. for another six months yeah. or three months or whatever we do. So, so, sometimes it feels to people that it's not necessary. I mean, they're on certain medication for years, mm-hmm. uh, but mm-hmm. <laughs> have to go back to the doctor every six months and maybe give 25 euro or whatever yeah. it is without a consultation uh, just to continue taking that medication. And some would argue that that's money for nothing for the GPs at the moment, but will that money for nothing uh, then uh, end up in the pockets of pharmacists? We don't know how the detail will roll out. And it's worth remembering also in the press release from the department, it's also stated that GPs and other prescribers, such as nurses or dentists, will be able to prescribe for some medicines for up to 12 months as well. So if the GP decides, actually, just similarly as you've decided, or as you've outlined, that medicine is really safe, you're doing really well on it, let's see you in a year, the GP can write that prescription for 12 months as well. Mm-hmm. It's where I say it really useful is if someone has been started on new medicine and everything is going really well, perhaps three months or six months, come back in and have a conversation with the pharmacist and then in 12 months have the, the GP um, review. I think it would be really, really successful. Mm. This is just the first report from this expert task sure, force. Yeah. 
the second phase is due to report in January mm. and I would anticipate at that point we see things like a minor ailment scheme, contraception without prescription and I'd like to see a serious shortage protocol in, implemented as, a, as, as soon as possible. Well, um, there are things that would... Sorry, Cathy, what, what will it mean to your workload? Have you got the time to do this? I, I mean... Uh, I think every pharmacist in the country is very busy at the moment Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, if you walk in off the street you're going to have uh, some time waiting Uh, and if you call to order a prescription in advance you'd be told to wait an hour or four hours or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. I I mean you're busy as it is. Will you be able to take on this extra workload? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It is exceptionally busy and no more than any other healthcare sector there are workforce issues in terms of recruitment and retention. However, that's when we look back at resources. Resources have to be allocated so I can empower my staff to do some of the tasks that I don't need to do so I can do that clinical care that patients need and deserve. And Slonger Care is all around giving the right care at the right door and it's getting down to where, do, where does that patient need to be seen? Is the pharmacy appropriate? Is the GP appropriate? Is the hospital appropriate? So getting really playing to the, the role of Sancho Care and making sure the patients are seen at the right place. We're trying to make healthcare much more accessible. And pharmacies are open. I know my pharmacy is open 9 to 7, Monday to Friday, and 9 to 6 on a Saturday. So they're long hours compared to other practitioner settings. So depending on what the consultation is needed, when you need to see the pharmacist, you may or may, not, may or may not be able to come in off the street or maybe a structured consultation. At the minute, pharmacies are busy doing flu vaccines and COVID vaccines and they're usually done by appointment basis. So if there's a consultation, it might be a case where you'll ring up and go, I know my prescription is going to run out. Mm. I'd like to have a consultation with the pharmacist. Ring me, how are you fixed? And I would see when I'd have an additional pharmacist on that I could have that consultation in mm. a structured fashion. Or, or, or you'd have consultations on Wednesdays and Fridays or, or some structured Possibly. approach to it like that. All right. Yes. Uh, okay, there's a few months yet ahead of us uh, before the 1st of March, but we can expect that change then. Cathy, thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Cathy Marr of the Haven Pharmacy in Dulik is the chair of uh, the Pharmacy Contractors Committee of uh, the Irish Pharmacy Union. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Legislation is coming in the last quarter of this year that will put e-bikes and e-scooters on a legal footing. Uh, there'll be a cut-off speed of 25 kilometres an hour and you will have to be at least 16 years of age to ride one of uh, these uh, machines. Let's speak to Tony Toner, former guarded driving instructor and on-road driving consultant. Uh, very good morning to you, Tony. Thanks for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Um, what are your thoughts on e-scooters before we talk about the legislation? As a unit, Michael, within the urban environment, they're phenomenally um, efficient. There's no question. Mm. Uh, They're seriously efficient. Uh, But they don't have the streets to themselves. They're mixing it with with a wide variety of traffic, most of which is twin track, as I call it, Cars, vans, trucks, buses, etc. These are single track, slim units that are powered by electrical propulsion. Um, they move from a standstill to uh, 20, 30 k, and an awful lot of them are mapped and remapped. That they they do speeds greater than the 25 they come out of the box in. Right. That's easy enough to do, is it? 
Well, like anything today, and particularly the generation of people that's writing them, are all very, very techy. Uh, you know, they're all tech savvy. Um, it's easy enough. Anything with um, an ECU can be remapped. I don't even know what an ECU is. <laughs> an electronic control unit, Michael. Your car has probably got about 50 of them. All right. Well, uh, forgive my ignorance. Uh, so yeah. uh, um, the machines may be sold uh, to the right spec, uh, which would mean that you wouldn't be able to do over 25 kilometres an hour, but that doesn't necessarily mean uh, that people would abide by that law because they may be able to soup them up, to put it a, another way, Tony. Indeed. Uh, 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 but what about sharing the roads? Uh, is there a concern about that? Oh, there has to be, Michael. There has to be. I'm a, a long-term motorcyclist, single-track vehicle, but much more physically substantial than any of these slim, you know, uh, small-wheeled electric scooters, e-scooters. And I know the vulnerability of managing a motorcycle out there in the traffic domain with vans, trucks and buses and cars. Um, You know, your own show has carried the vulnerability factor of bikes over many years now. you know, you put these small, fast-moving, and they're fast-moving in relation to everything else. The, the average speed of traffic through Drogheda is somewhere between four and six kilometers an hour. And these things can accelerate from zero to 25, 30 kilometers an hour mm. in seconds, in absolute seconds. I change in direction very very quickly mm. one minute they're on the right then they're dodge bump they're in on the left and they're slim they can come up the inside up the center or up the offside of a vehicle uh, it makes it very difficult um, for people to see them sometimes and in clement weather when there's rain on windows rain on mirrors uh, and they're not lit some of them mm. or the light is very low or it's full of muck because it is so low down in the drive line of other vehicles, um, they will not be seen. And the big thing about it is other people don't cog them. The recognition, the cog part is so important where people are mentally looking for the likelihood of an e-scooter being in their area. Should because they are anticipating larger vehicles. Right. What can be done to protect the riders? Should they be wearing helmets, high-vis jackets, as well as, as lights? Well, I can't see e-scooters putting on the protective gear that I have for my motorcycle. Mm. Uh, my Cordura gear, my, my Gore-Tex boots, my RI helmet, <laughs> you know, yep. my Gore-Tex gloves and going out on an e-scooter. I can't see any of them, number one, investing that sort of money hmm. uh, to do it. Well, you uh, need a you, you need a license to drive your motorbike, and you need a insurance. I don't think that will be necessary for vehicles yeah. under 25 kilometres yeah. an hour. Should drink driving uh, laws apply to them? Absolutely. These are motorised vehicles, Michael. Hmm. These aren't, you know, if there was no motor in them, they, they, 
but they're going to be treated differently to every other type of motorised vehicle, aren't they? Uh, And the dangers you're talking about are very real dangers. Uh, I'm not sure how uh, the riders have the nerve to share the roads with motor cars and vans and trucks and all of that sort of thing. And a lot of them don't. And that's why they're on the paths. They are, but, you know, they're small-wheeled. And again, from my own motorcycle background, when you're on a single-track vehicle, irregularities in the road surface, particularly this time of year, when the, the, you know it's cold and damp and there's, there's gunge, as we call it, everywhere, the roads will soon be salted, so you'll have grit, and it, it's like riding on marbles. And now you have these things coming, and they're driving in along the verge, where all the wash of the road is gathered, where grip is minimal on small wheel vehicles. The risk of slippage is massive, mm. absolutely massive. And if they're not wearing protective gear, in particular if they're not wearing a quality helmet, there is a real danger of physical harm. Okay. Uh, I suppose to conclude in the short time we have, Tony, do you believe uh, that we're going to be revisiting legislation on e-scooters in the future to address some of uh, the things you've expressed concern about today? Well, we've rarely got any of this stuff right at the first crack of it, Michael. We've rarely got it right. So revisiting it is a definite possibility. But there should be legislation. There should be um, some form of licensing. Um, There should be some form of insurance because these are motorised vehicles travelling at pace in the urban environment predominantly uh, they can cause damage they can cause injury and in anything else if you're doing something like that you would be it would be incumbent on you to have insurance and in this instance um, I definitely think there should be insurance Tony, thanks a million, as always, for joining us on the programme today. Tony Toner, former Garda driving instructor and on-road driving consultant. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, let me bring you some of uh, the comments coming to us uh, this morning. Thanks to everybody who's been in touch with us. Stephen in touch very early this morning. Uh, thanks uh, for your text, Stephen. This is Stephen in Drogheda who says, when is the government going to give us more money? €12 Euro certainly isn't enough. The price of groceries up again. When is it going to stop? Well, as I say, Stephen, thank you indeed for that. Margaret, uh, WhatsApping us today too. She says, Michael, we need to be careful with what we do with these electrical cables underground or overground remember 60 years ago the government at the time committed a horrendous mistake they pulled half the train tracks up i think it was because of a mode of transport called the motor car came into use oh isn't it isn't hindsight a marvelous thing imagine how we could reduce our carbon footprint if we'd left things as they are. Thank you indeed Margaret. Uh, Somebody else uh, this is Martin actually who says why can't they put these cables uh, underground? Uh, It's easily done in UK and France. Uh, Well they say from what I can remember of uh, the arguments we're uh, comparing apples with oranges uh, and it's uh, the type of, of lines and the length of uh, the project and so on Deirdre and Kells in touch about e-scooters saying they're deadly uh, I was very lucky I could have been knocked down by one on the footpath recently uh, we'd uh, another WhatsApp uh, then from somebody who was saying about these e-scooters that they're very frustrated by them blocking walkways 
uh, and they're an eyesore. You just see them everywhere. Why can't the e-scooters be more, the riders that is, be more responsible? Thank you as well for your message. Column then texting us today saying, Michael, it's great to see laws coming in for e-scooters as it is ridiculous what's going on on our roads and on our footpaths and the dangers that this is creating. But who's going to enforce these regulations as there's no enforcement of laws uh, as things stand? We keep bringing in new regulations, but without enforcement. Thanks, Colin. You're not the only person to uh, get in touch with us about e-scooters. Martin says uh, the former guard is spot on. They should have insurance on e-scooters and proper lights. Thank you indeed. Uh, If it's over, if it can do a speed of uh, more than 25 kilometres, I think you'll need to have tax insurance and all that stuff, Uh, but not if it's uh, capable uh, of doing less than 25 Um, The only answer to combat speeding on secondary roads is more speed vans, according to a Navin listener who says it seems Gardaí haven't the resources to do it adequately. How many more people are are going to die or have to die? Thanks uh, indeed. I don't know. It's really just it's been a dreadful 24 hours on uh, the roads. It's been a dreadful year on the roads and it really is heartbreaking to see us go backwards. And it's really upsetting, I think everybody will agree, to see how many young people are losing their lives on the road. And I don't know if that's a coincidence or if it's that the young people don't remember all those messages that were drilled down their throats, weren't they, uh, in the 90s uh, and the first part uh, of uh, the 2000s um, but it all seems so I don't know where all the messaging is gone uh, you may have heard us talk uh, about this with the Road Safety Authority on the programme recently and they said that they're targeting young people on TikTok and whatever else it is uh, but I don't know if it's because of messaging or because of just bad driver behaviour because of a lack of messaging or what it is uh, but there's something wrong there's definitely something wrong it's very heartbreaking to see so many people uh, lose their lives on the roads an awful lot of unnecessary deaths last week on the Dublin Road one of our listeners tells us this is at Ladywell an e-scooter clocked up over 30 kilometres an hour in a bike lane they were passing one of these signs that lights up and clocks your speed interesting to say the least Eamon No Party uh, texting us today saying Michael it's bad enough trying to avoid bicycles on footpaths Uh, In Dundalk, there's simply no policing. So who is going to police these e-scooters? My opinion is that they should all be banned completely. Uh, Thank you. Uh, Another text about e-scooters from somebody saying they should be insured and they should be taxed. And that's all scooters, regardless of what speed they can do. Jerry and Wilkinson making some very derogatory comments uh, about Darren O'Rourke's party. Uh, and he says that uh, uh, at the end of the day, when it comes to the north-south interconnector, what is important is that we all need an upgraded electricity network for the present and the future. And with the price of farming, I am certain that farmers will take the €50,000 plus. Thanks for sharing that with us. A completely different view, though, for somebody else who says, I have a solution to this problem with the pylons. Target strategic farmers in the middle of the project 
paid them enough money not to allow air grid onto their land and it could turn out cheaper to go overground, but it's not going to happen. Uh, that's uh, Tom and Navin. Uh, P.S. He says uh, they, if they had put the same energy into undergrounding the project, it, it would have been done by now. Thank you. Uh, as I say, Tom, uh, we had a text earlier on as well from Patricia. Uh, just to let you know, Patricia, we're trying to find out what was wrong with the lights. Uh, she wanted to uh, to know why the lights were out on the M1 last night, travelling from RD to the LMFM country show on the TLT. Uh, she says it, it was very dangerous. Thank you, Patricia. Uh, as I say, uh, we did get your text much earlier on uh, this morning uh, and uh, we're trying to get a, a response to that ever since you made contact. But thank you indeed for making contact with us this morning. Uh, an email, Dan, that uh, comes uh, to us uh, from Teresa Riley. Uh, saying uh, to hear Thomas Byrne say he's brought his campaign for undergrounding the North-South Interconnector as far as he can is such a nonsense and just political speak for another total failure on his part and of this FFFGP government. I think we know uh, what that means. I think you were, were you, you were a G short. Yes, you were a G short, but I think we know what that means. Uh, she says, I am ashamed at the lack of integrity, morality and basic humanity in everything this com- incompetent government does. And in particular, their present support uh, for this Israeli apartheid criminal genocide in Gaza and the West Bank. Uh, thank you indeed, uh, Teresa, for that. Uh, I don't think the Israelis would hear it that way. Uh, the Israelis are, are very annoyed uh, with Ireland and I think the Irish government uh, with uh, one of the ministers saying the Palestinians could go to the desert or Ireland over the weekend. Uh, and uh, I think uh, it's true to say uh, that whilst there has been some criticism of uh, the Irish government's response, uh, it has been stronger and more critical than most governments in the world. Uh, the Irish government has asked for humanitarian pauses so that humanitarian aid can get into the region. You've been hearing this morning that that's not a possibility. The Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, has told ABC News that a ceasefire is not an, a, a possibility. Well, there will be no uh, ceasefire, general ceasefire in Gaza without the release of our hostages. As far as tactical little pauses, an hour here, an hour there, we've had them before. I suppose uh, we'll check the circumstances in order to enable uh, goods, humanitarian goods to come in or our hostages, uh, individual hostages to leave. But I don't think there's going to be a general ceasefire. Uh, It's not that I don't think. I think it will hamper the war effort. It'll hamper our effort to get our hostages out because the only thing that works on these criminals in Hamas is the military pressure that we're exerting. Right, that's the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. He was speaking to ABC News, the World News Tonight programme, and David Moore putting questions to him. We may hear more of those responses later in the programme this morning. But if you want to make comment, 0419832000 is our telephone number. Text or WhatsApp 086 658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, there's a, a crisis in primary schools, a real shortage of uh, teachers, and we know this from a survey of all primary and special schools, which was conducted in the first week of October. Uh, a total of 1,094 schools responded uh, and highlighted how they're finding it difficult to fill vacancies. John Boyle is the General Secretary of the INTO. 
NTO, that's the Irish National Teachers Organisation. He's on the line. John, good morning to you. Uh, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. Uh, maybe you tell us a, a, a little bit about uh, the situation and how dire this crisis is. And I, I think we also have to mention that it's in the context of those schools who did respond because it's only 35% of schools that responded. That's right, Michael. It's, it's pretty dire in, in my experience. I'm in the sector now for 35 years. I was a principal for, for 19 of those years and um, I never ever came across a situation that we had up to 2,000 groups of children in Ireland in special schools and primary schools that couldn't be guaranteed to the teacher for, for a protracted period of time. I mean, those 306 of these schools had vacant posts. 89 had vacant permanent posts. 149 had vacant long-term jobs that had been maybe for a year or longer, you know, covering for teachers who would be on career break. And then 212 had vacant long-term sub-posts that would be mostly covered for maternity leaves. So, so that that's a very, very large figure uh, who had vacancies in the first month of the school year. Now, mm. it's not unknown that a school might have a vacancy for a week or two at the start of the year because with the recruitment process, sometimes people move schools late in the summer and you might be struggling to get a replacement day one, you know. Mm. But that's why we delayed the survey and we had it in the first week of October. But the startling thing about it was, Michael, that the principals who who responded to this survey, they were also pointing out that they expected to have another 1,200 long-term vacancies in the next three months. Now, that would be because they already know that certain teachers are pregnant and will be starting maternity leave. Some teachers have indicated, given their three months' notice, that they're going to be retiring. And some other teachers have been maybe promoted to a principalship in another school and they're working out their notice in their current school. So mm. so when you take the 1,200 plus the 800 yeah. that's total, I mean, that that is... We're into crisis mode at this stage mm. now. I suppose well, well that's, that, that's... Sorry, just a second. That's, that's 2,000. But can we multiply that by three if only a, a third of well, the schools uh, responded? I wouldn't be prepared to do that now, Michael. Mm. And I can understand why, why you're suggesting that because... I suppose the survey has to stand on its own two feet and they were the schools who responded. But but look, I was up in Dundalk last night um, meeting with our officers from your part of the world there up in County Loud and into Cavan, Monaghan and, and uh, you know, the, the, the northern side of Dublin. And this is the number one issue for them. Um, they, they were pointing out to me that they were delighted we did this survey because this time last year the department indicated that 99.5% of these positions were filled. But the department at the same time this time last year was saying that they acknowledged that the shorter term positions were not filled. Up to 1,600 of them were not filled uh, in the first term last year on a daily basis. But now we find that if the department's figure of last year, which would equate to about 200 positions, we now find that it could be 10 times worse this year than last year. Um, so these are children, the most vulnerable children are suffering because of this, Michael. Mm. Because if you're a principal teacher, and I had this experience myself, but thankfully I never had to do this particular um, a bit of a, a juggling act, or not certainly on a long-term basis, there was an odd day where I might have to ask one of my support teachers, my special education teachers, or my additional English language teacher for the children from abroad, or, or, or maybe one of my special class teachers, to step in and cover a mainstream class. You see, parents want to send their child into a primary school. 
the main thing they're interested in finding out is who's going to be teaching me child this year yeah. for for the full day. Yeah. And it, it's a bonus then if, if the child has a teacher then for extra supports for a part of the day. But those extra supports haven't been happening this year, Mega. There's been 5,000 plus occasions in the first month of the school year where vulnerable children who get extra supports from the department weren't able to get it because their teacher had to step in and cover for these vacancies. So, so th- this is a huge issue. And if, if that's going to be the statistic for the year, there'll be over 50,000 occasions when vulnerable children won't be having the supports that they're entitled to be getting. And in my view, this is uh, an infringement of their constitutional right to an education. So that's why Cabinet, instead of going in there today, looking at notes about banning mobile phones or, or, or discussing the use of mobile phones outside of the school building, because they don't happen in the, in, in, inside in the school building in the first case. I mean, wasting time on that rather than dealing with the real issue here in education at the moment. And the real issue is that so many of our children don't have it. I mean, they already have the largest classes in Europe. Their schools are struggling for funding to keep the heat on over the winter. And now we have an, an added uh, crisis that we don't even have a teacher to teach the children in so many schools. So, so no wonder we were so exercised about this when we got these survey results. They, they, they were really startling. I mean, we knew there was a problem, but we didn't think it was of this size. And the way to solve it is certainly, there's no doubt about it, it was mentioned last night in Dundalk, is to try to come up with a, a, a programme of housing for the workers that have to go to work every day. Is that uh, the biggest uh, obstacle? That, that's, that, that for, not only for teachers and for SNAs mm. and for education, but for workers across this land, rent pressure areas are problematic for everybody. But some workers actually need to be living fairly close to the workplace. Yeah. If you're working in retail, if you're a guard, if you're a nurse, if you're a teacher, I call these all frontline front workers. They can't afford, uh, they, they're not going to have the energy for the job if they're going to have to commute 100 kilometres each way to, to the workplace. They need to be reasonably close to the workplace. And if they can't afford to, to, to live anywhere close to the workplace, um, that's going to be a difficulty. So that, that's a long-term project for government, and I know they're working on that. But on top of that, 12, 13, 14 years ago, this profession of teaching was totally downgraded by those governments at that time. They cut the new entrant pay. They took away any any promotional posts that a person could have a career path in Ireland, that they would teach for a while, and then as they gained experience, they could look to maybe become an assistant principal and eventually a principal. They took out that middle leadership tier out of schools, and, and they gave us a miserly... 500 leadership positions back on budget day when when they knew that we were down two and a half thousand for the last 15 years when you wanted to specialize in education for example if you wanted to become a special education teacher work in a special school you did a diploma you give up a year of your life studying to do the diploma and then provided you committed to working in a special school you got to you got an allowance for that work of two thousand euro they stripped that out the young ones that they drove out of the country back in 2011-12 because they slashed their pay three times in a row, they've been away abroad, many of them ever since. A lot of them from your, your neck of the woods there, and mm. they often contact us. How are things back in Ireland now? We hear that if we come back, we won't have a chance of getting a promotional post. We won't give it, get any allowances anymore for the extra courses that we did. 
um, we, we won't even have a chance of getting a permanent job uh, in some cases, in some parts of the country. They need to look at those teachers and to say to them, we value the experience that you've gained abroad. We understand you've been away for 10 or 12 years. We're prepared to bring you back here and to give you 12 skips on the pay scale, give you 12 years credit for the 12 years that you're away. And these measures that I'm recommending to government cost money. There's no doubt about it, they cost money. Mm. But if we have a real premium on education here in this country, we'll spend the money. We did it last year for nurses when we couldn't find nurses to work uh, in hospitals in the Dublin area. The government decided that they would provide 135 euro a night, four nights of the week, 540 euros to incentivize nurses to uh, help them pay their rent basically near the hospital. But yet when it comes to teachers and we put forward proposals before the budget to try to make the uh, profession more attractive, we, 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 we get very, very little change out of government. So there's going to have to be a different mindset. I think there's public service pay talks start soon. And they're going to have to look at these professions because if we don't have proper public services here in Ireland, we've no problems uh, with children's mental health not getting help from uh, the various therapies that they need. But at least if they're in the school, uh, parents have, have, there was a survey done actually by the Medical Council last week, Parents have huge trust in their school and in the, in the primary teachers of Ireland. And parents want to make sure that their child has a fully qualified teacher in front of them every day. And it's our job as a union to call the government out when they're failing and they're planning around this area. So that's what our survey is doing. But hopefully we'll get a reaction. The last time we did the survey, Michael, um, in COVID times, it was about the short-term substitution that we couldn't find uh, enough teachers to cover for teachers who are absent, who had out with COVID leave and so on at, at that particular time. And within days of that survey result, the government was able to find another 300 teaching posts to try to deal with the situation. And it was very, very welcome at the time. So we're hoping this will concentrate the minds of Cabinet now, this survey, mm. that they will step in and that they'll come up with a suite of measures. To be fair to them now, I have to, I have to be balanced about this, Michael. Sure. We, we made... 20 recommendations to government last uh, just the weeks, the days before Christmas, and including in, in them was that they would give an allowance to the new entrant teachers um, who were prepared to commit to work in rent pressure areas. Now, on the budget day, they announced a measure like that, but unfortunately, of course, it won't be payable until 2025. But there's been a number. They've also decided to bring in 610 extra. Uh, t- teacher trainees into the higher education institutions but again we asked for 1600 they decided to bring in, in 610 but they're bringing them in over um, a, a three year period so some of those teachers won't be out until 2028 you see yeah. so I suppose like I, I give credit where credit's due they are, they are trying to address it, yeah. but there's no urgency. Well, there's and no arguing they, with your survey. It's, uh, well, uh, there isn't. And maybe yeah. the survey might help them to make their mind up that there actually is a crisis here now in schools and that they need to do something about it. Okay. John, uh, we've heard you loud and clear, and I know you hope the government is listening. Thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme today. John Boyle, General Secretary of the Irish National Teachers Organisation, the INTO. Now, let me go back uh, to some more of uh, the comments uh, coming to us. No insurance on bikes, Michael, says somebody. One hit me and broke his collar. 
uh, and if I understand your message uh, correctly, uh, they sued you after hitting you. Uh, I'm not sure if I have that correct, uh, but that's uh, the way <laughs> it reads to me, the way I'm looking at it at the moment. Uh, Ellen uh, texting us as well, saying, Michael, if I drive my car at 25 kilometres an hour, uh, do I need to pay tax and insurance or I don't need to and that would be brilliant says Alan uh, I think motor cars are different uh, Alan but uh, I guess uh, your comment I presume tongue in cheek for that matter Margaret thanks uh, for your text she says Tony Toner is 100% right when he said e-scooters should be insured they should also be taxed and there needs to be lights on them and the users should have to wear reflective gear and a helmet it's unfair on other road users that these motorised vehicles are being used without any care or consideration for other motorists the rules of the road should apply to all road users no matter what form of transport is being used some cyclists and pedestrians are out at night with no lights or reflective gear and dressed in dark clothing and people wonder why so many Many of them are killed on our roads. They should be prosecuted for being a danger to other road users. 250 for an armband to save a life. Vanity never saved anyone's life if that's the reason why they don't wear them. Thank you indeed, Margaret, as always, for your message to the programme. Our text number is 0861800658. Michael Reed on LMFM. Gaza is becoming a graveyard for children. Hundreds of girls and boys are reportedly being killed or injured every day. More journalists have reportedly been killed over a four-week period than in any conflict in at least three decades. More United Nations aid workers have been killed than in any comparable period in the history of our organization. I salute all those who continue their life-saving work despite the overwhelming challenges and risks. And the unfolding catastrophe makes the need for a humanitarian ceasefire more urgent with every passing hour. Now, that's the Secretary-General of uh, the United Nations speaking yesterday. Antonio Guterres making clear how dire the situation is in Gaza, and that is despite how some humanitarian aid is getting in there now. Some life-saving aid is getting into Gaza from Egypt through the Rafa crossing. But the trickle of assistance does not meet the ocean of need. And let's be clear, the Rafa crossing alone does not have the capacity to process eight trucks at the scale required. Just over 400 trucks have crossed into Gaza over the past two weeks, compared with 500 a day before the conflict. And crucially, this does not include fuel. Without fuel, newborn babies in incubators and patients on life support will die. Water cannot be pumped or purified. Raw sewage could soon start gushing onto the streets, further spreading disease. Trucks loaded with critical relief will be stranded. The way forward is clear. A humanitarian ceasefire now. Antonio Guterres, uh, the death toll has reached 10,000 in Gaza, exceeded 10,000 in fact at this stage and it's believed that more than 4,000 of those who have lost their lives 
our children. Let's speak to Edward Saloon, who is uh, the Humanitarian Manager with Oxfam Ireland. A very good morning to you, Edward. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, I'm sure you wouldn't argue with anything you heard there from the Secretary General of uh, the United Nations, but we also heard from the Israeli Prime Minister yesterday, who said that there won't be a ceasefire, there may be some tactical pauses an hour or two here to allow for some humanitarian work uh, to take place. It, it continues to be a most worrying situation, obviously. Hi, Michael, and thanks for having me. Um, yes, we do join voices with uh, Mr. Guterres, and uh, we stress that uh, uh, what we actually need to happen is a ceasefire, and we need it to happen immediately. Um, and uh, yes, we also join voices in saying the aid that is trickling into Gaza is not barely uh, anywhere enough uh, to, uh, to to suffice for the needs that are just enormous um, uh, across across all of Gaza. Okay, uh, the hope is uh, that American diplomacy may change the perspective of uh, the Israeli regime, but uh, as things stand, uh, there's an awful lot of innocent lives being lost. Uh, I mean, when we hear Antonio Guterres talk about uh, newborn babies uh, who need uh, incubators to be fueled, who are going to die if there isn't fuel, uh, they didn't do anything on the Israelis, did they? Oh, they, they certainly haven't, and they join. I mean, they're not alone. Uh, there, there is. There are people who need kidney dialysis who haven't done anything to the Israelis. Who are, there are people who need cancer treatment who also were not, um, to, you know, part of this conflict whatsoever. Um, and there are also people who um, uh, um, are completely out of this struggle. Like, so, for example, uh, um, we heard yesterday that Emily Hand. Uh, the, uh, the, the 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 Irish Israeli girl um, who um, uh, who was thought to be uh, dead was there was a glimpse of hope that she's alive um, and being Gaza now what we want for her she wasn't she wasn't also part of this conflict obviously and for the uh, additional forty Irish citizens that are in Gaza now and equally importantly for the hundreds of thousands of Palestinians that are there. We want to cease fire. We wanted to stop because we couldn't even imagine what they're living through now. Mm, yeah, indeed. Uh, the uh, Israeli Prime Minister was asked in that ABC News interview last night if he was putting uh, those hostages in even greater danger because they're in the line of fire. It's an almost impossible situation, it would seem, on the ground for international aid organisations such as Oxfam. Uh, is it possible uh, to bring assistance to any uh, amount of people um, that is noteworthy? Um, well, Michael, for us and Oxfam, we're trying our best to uh, just, to, uh, I mean, keep checking our, on our 33 staff who are now in, uh, in Vaza, uh, who have, all have lost families, uh, some, some of them close family members, um, uh, the, the, what they assure us is that uh, it, we, they cannot operate safely now. Uh, there's no way for a um, uh, for a massive kind of uh, for large scale operation, which is what is needed uh, in Gaza, to to be um, to be executed uh, now uh, under the current circumstances. One of our staff, Fida, Fida, for example, in the south that is supposed south of Gaza that is supposedly safe. Uh, told us that uh, yesterday, uh, uh, November 6th, they woke up 
to tons of bodies in the street. Uh, the sounds uh, 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 of war and uh, uh, um, that she describes, uh, aerial bombardment, uh, ground bombardment, uh, even in the south, uh, um, along with the blackout, um, electricity, and barely some communication, it's just, um, you know, it induces a perpetual feeling of panic for them, and there's no way to operate under these circumstances. We, however, mm. are operating through partners who are volunteering at this stage to do what they can when any opening of safety uh, is there. Um, we're trying to get some cash assistance for people to to be able to buy whatever canned food is has remained in the shops, and that's very little now. And we have uh, we are also trying to distribute. It. Uh, through these partners, um, hygiene kits uh, to try to mitigate the spread of diseases that is uh, a result of the cutoff of water and and um, and also the uh, uh, the damage of the sewage system. Mm. Uh, I'm sure you're hearing um, from Oxfam staff uh, in Gaza. Um, how are they holding up? Uh, it must be a, a terrifying place to be in at the moment. Uh, there seems to be no safe zone, regardless of you, who you are or what you're doing there. Uh, everybody is under fire. Uh, and I think uh, over 89 members of UNRWA have uh, died as a, a result of this conflict. Now, a, a very dangerous place. And I take it like civilians, uh, there's little prospect of getting out for most people. Um, you're right, Michael. Uh, National aid workers, also um, hospital staff, um, healthcare uh, staff, um, ambulance drivers, they've been all affected one way or the other. Some of them have been killed. Some of them injured, some of them just cannot operate anymore. And what we're hearing from Oxfam staff um, um, in Gaza, whether it is in the north, where the uh, kind of heavy operations are going on, whether it is in Gaza City that is now a siege within a siege, um, uh, uh, or whether in the south, which is uh, supposedly uh, a, a little safer, uh, that no, uh, actually no place is uh, safe. Mm, the most populated city in the world uh, now to become a, a battlefield uh, along with uh, the rest of uh, the country. And what can we do? I mean, I think it's probably true to say everybody is appalled at the loss of human life, the scale of that loss of human life. And on the other hand, we all feel incredibly helpless. Um I mean, I share with you, Michael, the feeling of hopelessness, but uh, I also have to point out that the Irish people have been extraordinary in this domain, have uh, been uh, 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 very vocal in supporting uh, ceasefire, in supporting um, uh, uh, the, um, that, the, um, in supporting that uh, the military operation has to stop and people have to be uh, allowed uh, aid and uh, uh, um, uh, the, the, the mass slaughter actually has to uh, stop. Uh, so, um, I mean, for, from from what I see, uh, Irish people can just continue doing what they're doing, which is just raising their voices, um, marching for peace, uh, talking to their TDs, emailing their uh, government representatives uh, um, to push for a ceasefire, to push for a stop to this to this uh, atrocity, um, and for um, uh, you know aid to. Mm. Um, uh, to be allowed in. If there is to be a, a pause or a ceasefire, uh, 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 how soon will you be able to react um, to the opportunity to get into Gaza? 
Well, the one advantage maybe to the the inability to operate within Gaza is that it has given us the opportunity to focus on uh, planning and uh, for the response and for that planning to be as flexible and changing as the situation is right now. Uh, So we have plans that are changing by the day uh, in in Oxfam, in in, in OPT, and um, uh, we are preparing for a response whenever that's possible. Mm. And um, I suppose that's in different stages as well because there will be a short-term immediate response if there's a, a pause. I presume like all conflicts uh, at some stage uh, this will end uh, and um, there's going to be years uh, of not just cleaning up but dealing with uh, the aftermath physically and psychologically that people have uh, been subjected uh, to so much uh, over the course of the last month. Yeah, uh, you're right, Michael. For any conversation about recovery, early recovery uh, to start there needs to be a ceasefire for the time being. There needs to be a safe environment for humanitarians to work, to assess and to respond. Okay, Edward, look, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning and uh, uh, many uh, thanks, as I say, much appreciated. Edward Salwin is the humanitarian manager with Oxfam Ireland. Now, I think um, we can hear uh, a little bit more from uh, the Secretary General of uh, the United Nations. This is Antonio Guterres, uh, who was talking about what he believes needs to be done now. The way forward is clear. A humanitarian ceasefire now. All parties respecting all their obligations under the international humanitarian law now. This means the unconditional release of the hostages in Gaza now. The protection of civilians, hospitals, UN facilities, shelters and schools now. More food, more water, more medicine and of course fuel entering Gaza safely, swiftly and at the scale needed now. Unfettered access to deliver supplies to all people in need in Gaza now. And the end of the use of civilians as human shields now. None of these appeals should be conditional on the others. And for all of these, we need more funding now. In addition, I remain gravely concerned about rising violence and an expansion of the conflict. The occupied West Bank, including East Jerusalem, is at a boiling point. Let us also not forget the importance of addressing the risks of the conflict spilling over to the wider region. We are already witnessing a spiral of escalation from Lebanon and Syria to Iraq and Yemen. That escalation must stop. Cool heads and diplomatic efforts must prevail. Hateful rhetoric and provocative actions must cease. Right, so that's Antonio Guterres. Now, uh, he's calling for the killing to stop. He's not just calling on uh, the Israeli uh, government uh, to stop its bombardment of Gaza. He's obviously speaking to Hamas uh, as well. Uh, But when it comes to... Uh, ending uh, this conflict, uh, uh, albeit for a short period of time, so that civilian lives aren't lost. That's the 10,000 lives that have already been lost and the 4,000 children who have already been killed in Gaza. 
Well, let's hear a little bit uh, about uh, what uh, the Israeli Prime Minister thinks about that. This, once again, is Benjamin Netanyahu. I think every civilian loss is a tragedy. Every civilian life lost is a tragedy. Uh, We're fighting an enemy that is uh, particularly brutal. They're using their civilians as human shields. And while we're asking the Palestinian civilian population to leave the war zone, they're preventing them at gunpoint. They're using them as human shields. Uh, That's uh, Benjamin Netanyahu again uh, from uh, that interview with ABC News and the World News Tonight programme and uh, the interviewer there, David Moore. We may hear more from that later in the programme. I'm sure you'll be hearing much uh, about uh, the Prime Minister's comments on uh, ceasefire, ruling it out uh, to all intents and purposes in uh, that interview. Uh, But uh, as I say, we may hear more from that a little bit later on in the programme today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time of Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents Garda are investigating locally. Perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda Laura Rudden joins us for this week's report from RD Garda Station. Good morning and thank you for joining us uh, for the report uh, this week. And we're going to begin in Drogheda. We go back a a week in time to Tuesday of last week and uh, robbery at a, a a very busy pharmacy in the town last Tuesday evening. Good morning, Michael. Yes, this uh, robbery happened exactly a week ago there. Um, on Tuesday, the 31st of October, at approximately 5.15pm, at Cottage Pharmacy, Sandyford House in Drada. So Guardian Drada are investigating this incident where a lone male entered the Cottage Pharmacy, produced a knife to staff and demanded money from the till. The staff member then placed cash from the till into a bag the male was holding. This male then left the store and is believed to have headed in the direction of Cord Road in Drogheda. This was obviously a very frightening incident for the staff member involved and guardian appealing for anyone who was in the area at the time may have seen it happen or observed someone acting unusual in the area around the time to contact Drogheda Garda Station on 041 987 4200 or the Garda Confidential Line on 1800 666 111. Uh, next uh, to Modelin Street in Kells, similar type of robbery. This happened on Sunday, just gone by. Yes, this was um, a robbery from a shop on Modelin Street in Kells, the nearby shop. And this happened just before 8pm on Sunday, the 5th of November. Kells Guardian are investigating this incident. Again, a male dressed in dark clothing entered the shop carrying a carrier bag. He approached the cashier behind the till and while pointing a knife at them, told them to empty the, hit, the till. The male then actually entered the till area himself and while still holding the knife, forced the cashier to open two tills. The male removed the cash from the tills and he also removed three cartons of cigarettes from the cigarette display before leaving the shop. He left in the, direct, the direction of the Magdalen Court estate on foot. So if anyone was in the area at this time, may have seen someone matching this description, a male with dark clothing, carrying a carrier bag, uh, acting unusual in the area at the time, to please contact Kells Garda Station on 046 or the Garda Confidential Line on 1-800-666-111. Next to Navin and a burglary that occurred at a self-storage unit in Mullock Boy Industrial Estate, a quad bike and two scramblers were stolen. Yes, this incident happened um, last Friday on the 3rd of November between 1.30am and 1.40am. So very small time frame there, 1.30am and 1.40am. 
um, a steel storage container was broken into and two scramblers and one quad bike were stolen from this unit. The quad bike taken is a blue Yamaha quad bike and the two scramblers are black, blue in colour, Garia scramblers. Navigardi are appealing for anyone who may have been in the area at this time, may have seen any unusual activity, any unusual vehicles in the area, something that might have stood out to them, to just contact them on 046 907 or the Garda Confidential Line on 1-800-666-111. Okay, there's a, a couple of house burglaries to report on this week. The first of these on Wednesday night in Dulik. Yes, unfortunately, there's still a number of burglaries occurring. So this one occurred on Wednesday, the 1st of November, between 10pm and 10.20pm at Scarterna, Julie County Mead. Julie Gardy investigated this incident. Uh, in this incident, an elderly couple house was broken into while they were at home. Two males entered the house through the back door, which was unlocked. They took jewellery and a handbag. The couple was in the house at the time, but luckily... No aggression or violence was used towards them by the males. However, still an extremely distressing and frightening incident for them both. Guardy are appealing to anyone who was in the area at the time. May have seen any persons acting unusual or any strange vehicles in the area around the time. So please contact the Leap Garda Station on 041-982-3222, their local Garda Station, or for the Garda Confidential Line on 1-800-666-111. And another burglary down in Kilmainham and Kells on Saturday evening. Yes, this burglary occurred just Saturday gone by between 5pm and 5.45pm at Woodcote, Kilmainham in Kells. Um, this is where a house owner returned home to find that their house broken into. Entry and exit was gained through the front door where the front lock was damaged. All the wardrobes in the bedrooms were opened and a large quantity of jewellery was taken. Again, if anyone was in the area at this time, very small time frame again, 5pm and 5.45pm on Saturday the 4th of November. If they may have noticed any vehicles or any persons acting unusual around the area, please contact Kells Garda Station 046 928 or the Garda Confidential Line 1-800-666-111. OK, and you're re-appealing for information on a burglary because this was a particularly worrying incident that happened in RD, not on Friday gone by, but the Friday before that, the 27th of October. Yes, we're just a renewed appeal um, for information in relation to this aggravated burglary. As I said, it occurred on Friday the 27th of October at 9.20pm in the Riverstown area of RD. In this incident, an 83-year-old lady had three masked intruders enter her home by force, armed with hurleys. They met off with her handbags and jewellery. Thankfully, she wasn't injured, but again, an extremely distressing incident for her. So Gardy in Ardy Garda Station are appealing to anyone with perhaps dash cam footage from their vehicles or CCTV footage on their premises, which may assist with inquiries. Some of the items were found on the M1 southbound, which indicates the direction of travel of the suspects after this incident. If anyone was travelling on that stretch road between Ardy and Drada between 9.30pm and 10pm on the 27th of October, they might have some information regarding vehicle which they may have seen travelling erratically or indeed just acting um, unusual or suspiciously. So please contact RD Garda Station on 041 685 3222 
with the Garda Confidential Line on 1-800-666-111 or indeed their own local station. And I know Garda are encouraging people to light up their homes and lock up their homes, particularly between 5 and 10 in the evening as we go into the winter when burglaries are on the increase. Thank you indeed, Garda Laura Rudden of RD Garda Station. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme and God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie